Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 112 with Hannah Raskin. So I stopped, um, actually I remember it was my last trip before the shutdown. So I was in San Antonio and we had, I think a review was going to run that week or maybe a review I was going to write. And if that, at that point we realized there was no point in running reviews because restaurants were about to close. And I continued not to write reviews for, I haven't written one since. And my rationale there was, there was a number number of reasons why I did that. I mean, there were some logistical reasons. One was that, like so many businesses, um, newspapers suffered during the pandemic. And as we kind of alluded to earlier, restaurant reviewing is expensive. So the budget was significantly cut. The most important thing is that here in South Carolina, um, we went back to on-premise unrestricted dining in May 2020. And so because of that, it was impossible for me to review a restaurant without possibly inciting people to go there, which in the midst of a pandemic pre-vaccine was like a really, really bad idea. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This week, my guest is Hannah Raskin. Hannah spent the past eight years as food editor and chief critic for The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. During her time there, she was nominated for four James Beard Foundation Awards, winning the organization's first-ever prize for local impact journalism. She recently left the newspaper to begin publishing The Food Section, a twice-weekly sub-stack newsletter that will bring original, inclusive, and independent food journalism to underserved cities and states across the American South. The Food Section launched on September 15th. On the show, we discuss her experiences as a restaurant reviewer, the state of dining in South Carolina during COVID, and her decision to abstain from reviewing restaurants during the pandemic. We discuss whether or not a chef or restaurateur's behavior should be considered when reviewing a place. And of course, you'll learn all about her newsletter, The Food Section. And we'd love it if you supported the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast and community. There are a few ways to help. First, if you have a business or product, we're always looking for sponsors. You can also support our existing sponsors like Savory Jobs. If you shop on Amazon, we have our own affiliate link. Or be like cool kids Matt Collins and Justin Kana and consider joining our Patreon. If nothing else, it would be great if you subscribed to the show, rated it, and reviewed it. And maybe share your favorite episodes on social media. The links to all these things are in the show notes as usual. The support means everything to me. And now, here's a word from this week's sponsor, Savory Jobs. Did you know restaurants turn over employees four times faster than most businesses? What if somebody created an affordable and effective hiring solution for the restaurant industry? What if there were a job site that only focused on people looking for food service jobs? 
What if that site only cost $50 a year to advertise for every job your restaurant needed? Forget the big corporate sites like Indeed and Monster. Our sponsor, Savory Jobs, has a job site exclusively for restaurants. The best part is, Savory Jobs only charges $50 for an entire year, and you can post all the jobs you want. And for our loyal listeners, use the code SAVORY10 and get 10% off. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y-1-0. So go to SavoryJobs.com and discover the job site that's shaking up the industry. And remember to use SAVORY10 for 10% off. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Hey, Hannah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. You uh, are very familiar with my favorite food city in North America, so I can't wait to hear some stuff about Charleston, but also all the cool things you're working on. Great. So I guess we'll just jump right into it. I guess our listeners probably know you most from being a food writer, reviewer uh, at The Post and Courier in Charleston. So can we talk about how and why you got into food writing and uh, restaurant reviews? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got into food writing um, through writing first. Um, Like a lot of food writers, I went into newspapers right out of college, but wasn't writing about food. I was writing about crime, like most starting, you know, rookie reporters. I didn't stay at newspapers all that long, at least the first time around. Um, This was kind of before the internet. And I had these ideas that my story should last longer than one day. So I went to museum school, thinking I would design exhibits, which would have kind of a longer shelf life, so to speak, but still doing storytelling. As it turns out, once you get acclimated to the pace of a newsroom, no museum works fast enough. Um, And the idea that your deadline is three or four years away really just blew my mind. Um, so I did stay around uh, in the museum field, but I did, um, I was at a master's program where I also got a master's in American history. Um, And so I worked in a food history topic. So after that, I moved down to Asheville to lead mountain bike trips. And while I was there, the Alt Weekly needed a food writer. So by that point, I had the newspaper experience. I had some food history background. I've been waitressing ever since high school, really. So I had some sense of how restaurants work. So Um, I started doing this kind of work for pay in 2004 or five, I believe. Did you like restaurants and dining? Like, were you someone who always went to restaurants and thought they had a good palate? Um, Those are two different questions. Like, I don't (laughs) think um, when I was a kid, I don't think I had any sense of what a palate was. I did not, you know, grow up in a refined food family. Um, I really, much more so than being renowned for my palate when I was a kid, um, I was renowned for my appetite. When I uh, went off one summer in high school, I had the opportunity to do one of those homestays in France. And uh, my host family used to invite over their friends just so they could watch me eat because I think I was the stereotypical American uh, in how well I cleared my plate and everybody else's. So I didn't think a lot about, you know, having a palate at that young age, but um, I've always loved restaurants. That's, you know, always been a a really important thing for me. I think being a restaurant reviewer sounds like one of those things that people think is probably more exciting and glamorous than it is, right? Like, oh, you get to go eat out at all these places for free and have whatever you want. So like, is that true? And what are some kind of misconceptions about um, the way the whole process works? 
Sure. Well, it's definitely true that people think it's a dream job. Um, I think in part because they think the eating is all I do, when in fact, that's like a tiny little fraction of what I do. So I do enjoy going out. But when you're working as a critic, what people don't always realize is you go to every restaurant at least twice, usually three times and sometimes four. And that includes and especially the restaurants that don't seem all that great. So the fourth time going back to a restaurant where you're pretty sure you're going to have a bad meal is not exactly a dream for anyone, I would guess. I never thought about that. You know, you just kind of think about the one review that you see every week, but not thinking about all the places that aren't amazing. Right. And because there's so many places that never get written up at all, because it's like, well, there's like nothing really happening here. So, I mean, there are plenty of unmemorable meals in between. I don't live in Charleston, but I love Charleston. It's uh, probably where I go the most. My uh, sister-in-law lives down there, so we get down there every year. So I've really come to follow your writing and reviews. I don't know, not to kind of give me an idea of where to eat. I think I just like the food writing. Like by the time I'm getting down there, I think I already know where I'm going to eat. Sure. But it seems to me that you're kind of a controversial person. Is that a fair assessment? Like reading the I guess like on Facebook posts, like the comment section, it seems like people either really love your stuff or have strong feelings about your writing. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I mean, I'm probably the worst person to ask because I don't pay as much attention to it. You know, and there are a lot of people, especially in a polite Southern city, who think a lot of things that they wouldn't say to my face. So I probably don't know. But yeah, I would say polarizing is a fair descriptor. Don't read the comment section. I always read the comment section. And not only do I read the comment section, I usually respond to as many comments as I can. You stopped doing reviews this past year or so. Is that right? Correct. When did when did you stop doing that? And what prompted that decision? COVID. So I stopped. Um, actually, I remember it was my last trip before the shutdown. So I was in, in San Antonio. And we had, I think, a review was going to run that week. Or maybe a review I was going to write. And if that, at that point, we realized there was no point in running reviews because restaurants were about to close. And I continued not to write reviews for, I haven't written one since. So whatever that was, March 10, 2020 or whatever. So yeah, like 16, 17 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my rationale there was, I, I, there was a number, number of reasons why I did that. I mean, there were some logistical reasons. One was that like so many businesses, um, newspapers suffered during the pandemic. And as we kind of alluded to earlier, restaurant reviewing is expensive. So the budget was significantly cut. Um, But the most important reason um, was, and two, I mean, there's also the idea that like, how can you possibly review a restaurant during the pandemic? I know lots of folks talked about this, but you know, what they were doing was just trying to stay afloat, um, which is not the most interesting restaurant to review because you're saying like, what's this restaurant trying to do? It's trying to survive. Um, so that's really not the fun of reviewing. But the most important thing is that here in South Carolina, um, we went back to on-premise unrestricted dining in May 2020. And I always have to emphasize the year because I know there are a lot of states that didn't go back until May 2021. And so because of that, it was impossible for me to review a restaurant without possibly inciting people to go there, which in the midst of a pandemic pre-vaccine was like a really, really bad idea. So I couldn't even review takeout because even if I got takeout, there was no guarantee that my readers wouldn't go sit inside the dining room and stick in the workers and other guests. That's a really interesting take that you saw like a almost like a moral obligation to <laughs> protect people. I don't think that that's the stance that a lot of food writers took. 
Yeah. And as I said, I mean, people were in different situations, like my friends who write in LA, like there was only takeout. So I understand why they kept going um, with reviews. And I understand too, because that they were so limited out in California, I think there was a lot of creativity. We didn't see any of that because we didn't have to have any of that. So it was a very different scenario. South Carolina in general seems like a crazy place to me. I mean, we were down there this past uh, May and it, it felt like business as usual, which to me was like weird and scary. You know, I have literally still not eaten in a restaurant since March of 2020. Like, yeah. I mean, I've got two unvaccinated young kids at home and we're just yep. trying to protect them even though we're vaccinated. But it, it just seems so weird that like, yeah, last summer people were sitting inside restaurants eating. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like shell shock I, when you walk by these restaurants and just see them completely full. And I, you know, like good for the owners, I guess, that they're keeping their business going. But it was just not how I was living. Uh, yeah, no, it was stunning. And, and I think, I mean, this has been reported nationally, but of course, people who were really unhappy about mask mandates and other safety protocols knew that they didn't have to follow them here. So that's the crowd we were getting. So it was totally, um, it's totally wild for a long time. You don't want to wear a mask or get a vaccine? Go to South Carolina. They exactly. don't care. Exactly. Right. I think that's their state slogan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so glad at least the weather was nice when I was down there that we were able to do takeout and uh, some outdoor dining, you know. Uh, yeah, that made all the difference. I mean, yeah, outdoor dining was very easy to do here. Um, but it's just amazing. You would Again, this was pre-vaccine and there would be outdoor dining areas just empty and everyone sitting inside. Ah, weird world. Yeah. Well, when do you foresee, I mean, do you think once like kids and everyone are vaccinated, like when would, do you think it would be like a good time to go back to reviewing restaurants? And then that's, that's a great question. I am planning to reintroduce reviews this fall. Um, I think, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a day by day call. Um, when I made that, when I, you know, when I, when I planned on picking up reviewing again in October, November, somewhere around there, it was before Delta had really peaked, you know, things obviously change all the time. But I, I mean, I think now there are enough people who are eating inside that I, and I think, gosh, I mean, it's a really tough call, but I, I, I guess my concern, my growing concern now is we know, I mean, the science shows vaccinated people are not dying the way unvaccinated people are. They're not facing the same kind of hospitalization. So we're dealing with a different kind of risk. So knowing that, I know that people are going to restaurants and that's my job. I mean, really my job as a critic, most importantly, is to, you know, help people make decisions about how to spend money in restaurants. And I they know they're spending money. And I guess what, what occurred to me is this summer I was traveling around and reacquainting myself with the South after the pandemic. And, you know, there's some restaurants out there that are doing a really lousy job. Um, there are some that are doing a really pretty great job. Um, and when I think about, I mean, yes, we want to be sympathetic to all those in the industry and everything that, you know, all those that have suffered. But I think, too, of the school teachers and the healthcare workers who have gone through so much and they deserve to have a great night out. And I feel like if restaurants aren't delivering it to them right now, it's probably time for reviewing to start again. You don't see any kind of leniency period then, I guess, when you're going back to reviewing. Like, it's just, uh, you know, because right now it's so hard, right? Like, everyone talks about labor shortage and everything. Yeah. At what point do we decide that, like, they need to be operating at, you know, back to normal, you know. Back to again, right. again back to normal is hard. But, like, if you're paying the same price, like, if I go to a restaurant and their entree is $35 today and it was $35 a year ago. Right. Like, how much slack should we be cutting them, I guess, is what I'm getting at. 
Right. I mean, yes, we, you know, always, and this is true whether we're in pandemic conditions or not. I mean, as a critic, you have to be cognizant of the circumstances, you know, surrounding a restaurant and, and its operation. So, yes, I mean, we know that like the supply chain is totally screwed up right now. You know, um, there are some things that are absolutely beyond a restaurant's control. But a restaurant that hasn't gotten word that like they should be paying their employees a little bit more and hasn't made those adjustments uh, that, you know, I think the for- forgiveness is is not going to last long on that front. And then I guess that brings me to another question, which is how much should we be thinking about the way a restaurant runs and who the operators are in the context of a review? I mean, you know, in this day and age where it seems like there's more and more places where, I don't know, the chef was uh, harassing employees. Like, does that weigh in at all? I know Eater was like not reviewing places at all if it seemed that someone who was running their operation or the chef there, uh, you know, was a bad actor. What do you, What's sure. your take on that? So, I mean, my feeling is this. I've been a reporter long enough to know that to prove those kind of allegations takes a ton of work. I mean, if you look at, you know, even when it's something everybody has heard, you know, I think would it take the Seattle Times two years to put together its story on Eduardo Jordan? You know, it's like it, you can't prove this stuff overnight. And it's, you know, I absolutely believe in listening to every allegation, taking every accusation seriously. But I'm also well aware that especially when women or people of color are in power, people are likely to try and take them down uh, potentially with accusations that aren't true. And so what what I'm getting at is you really can't base anything on rumor. It's just it. You can't do it. You need to report this stuff out. So, yes, I listen, but I'm not going to strike a restaurant from consideration if nothing's been proven. I just, you know, when you want to get, when it takes two years to do that and I'm putting out a review a week, uh, you, you, you can't do it. You can't do it. And then I feel like the news cycle is so short that people have forgotten, like, are anyone talking about Eduardo Jordan or anything <laughs> anymore? You know, I feel like that was a million years ago and it was like maybe two right? months ago at most. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, right. Exactly. You're, you're right. There is a very short attention span on things like that. However, you know, when something is absolutely proven, and I, I used to work in the Seattle market, I don't now, don't now, so I don't know how all that's played out. But for instance, there is a restaurateur in the Charleston area who has been sued multiple times in connection with sexual assault. Um, there have been, I mean, I won't go through all the court cases, but once it gets to court, once it's, you know, the police get involved, absolutely. I, I won't forget about that, even if the public do. Um, so, for instance, that person's restaurants never once appeared in the food section of the newspaper here when I was running it in any context. This mm. that that's easy. But I would say beyond like the, you know, the workplace, um, you know, toxic workplaces and abuse and assault of you know employees potentially, what you can do is you certainly can assess some of the behaviors on display. So for instance, what I'm getting at here is during the like heart of the pandemic, I gave out a set of awards to re- to restaurants that were really doing a good job on the safety front because there were so many that weren't. And I thought that was really important to draw attention to that to me that that, I, I mean, to me, that was immoral. Some of the things that were happening here um, in terms of the danger they were exposing their staff and guests to. So th- that kind of thing, I, I will always take stock of. It doesn't matter, you know, how good the muscles are if if I think the the business practices are questionable in that regard. 
I like that. It's kind of like uh, parenting kids. Like I have two kids. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, when my daughter's doing something really good that we would love my son to do, we reward her instead mm-hmm. of, you know, kind of yelling at him and just say, hey, great job. Yep. Yep. Well, you left your job at the paper to start your own thing. And I would really love to talk about that. So now you have a Substack newsletter called The Food Section. Do you want to talk about that for a while? Absolutely. Um, so the idea of behind the food section is to do what I was doing in Charleston, uh, which is to cover food and beverage, uh, industry, culture, and anything else related to eating and drinking, but rather than restrict my coverage area to Charleston um, to cover the entirety of the South. So it's kind of, I mean, all all the states where you drink sweet tea, it's like 10 states. How North is the South in your opinion? Um, well, there are some states that are split, right? Like, uh, you know, I mean, parts of Maryland are Southern, parts of, you yeah. know, right? Like parts of Ohio were probably Southern. Uh, I live in Maryland outside of DC, and I'm originally from the Boston area, and people talk about this as the South. And I was like, I don't know. When I was living up in the Boston area, I never would have thought of this as the South. No, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't count DC, but partly, I mean, it's, it's convenient for me not to count DC because I don't need to compete in that market. Like the whole idea behind this initiative is that there are so many underserved communities where there should be food journalism happening, but isn't, you know, I mean, the post does a great job. I don't need to, I don't need to be in DC, um, but there are plenty of places in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee where they don't have that kind of coverage and they need it. So, um, you're going to go out and find all these fun, cool stories that we don't know anything about. Is that right? That's my hope. Yeah. (laughs) And when did you conceive of this? Like, when did you know that this was a project you wanted to take on? It's something I've been toying with for a while, just because, again, like I felt like the work I did here was really well received by readers, as you said earlier, not all readers. Um, But actually, the idea, like, it doesn't bother me any if people, you know, don't like what I say or don't like me. At all. It's funny. I actually just got an email from someone uh, out of state saying they had a funny story about a certain person and I had to Google the name. And it's like, oh, that's a restaurateur who banned me from his restaurant. Like it doesn't even I I, I don't care at all. Um, So anyway, so the point is, it's fine if people don't like me, but the idea is to get people talking. And I think I was successful in doing that here. So you know, it seemed, I was like, look, I could do this in more places. Uh, it wasn't possible to do that under the auspices of the paper. So um, Substack actually put out a call, like looking for local journalists who needed financial support to get something started. So I applied to that and they gave me a grant. I had completely forgotten I had applied until they did give me a grant um, and decided to run with it. And not everyone knows what Substack is, but it's a newsletter that there's both free and paid options, right? Yeah. So every Substack publisher um, can structure it however they like. So my newsletter is currently free because I want folks to see what's happening with it. But by the end of October, early November, it will primarily be behind a paywall. All the free subscribers will receive is just a short email saying, here's all the stuff you missed. Man, paywalls are a hot topic on Twitter, aren't they? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's fun to have everything fully accessible, but, you know, good journalism costs money. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand. Like, you have to pay your bills somehow. I don't I don't know how people don't understand that. I mean, myself, I've done some independent writing for publications, both free and paid, and it's a ton of work. And I'm a super amateur. And it's like, wow, I put all this time in to write this thousand word piece. And uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you don't want to undervalue it. You don't want to give it away. And my goal ultimately is to build this, the food section, to build it into a platform for other journalists. Like, you know, it's fun for me to bounce from state to state, but it's better to have people on the ground. But I I, I got to pay them. You know, I really believe in paying people what they're worth. So that, that's what money buys. I think we had talked about even like at some point, didn't you and I talk about like food festivals and free food and that kind of stuff a couple of years I'm ago? I'm sure. Feel like. Yeah. Yeah, because that's one of my like hot topics is, you know, you're having this event that someone's making money off of and you can't give a single dollar ahead to the cooks who are providing the food and right. and labor. Ridiculous. Right. And the food. Yeah. And the yeah. food, especially. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I think this is so interesting because it's not just uh, restaurant reviews, it's food writing. You know, like when you're writing reviews about restaurants in Charleston, um, you know, I wouldn't always read them because it doesn't pertain. But now you're doing some real interesting food writing that I think is universal that everyone can enjoy and hopefully get something out of. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's really been fun to think about a wider audience. Um, you know, I think a lot of what I did in Charleston probably was applicable to a wider audience. But, you know, now making sure that it is. Um, yeah, it's a fun exercise. And I just read the friends and family piece uh, yesterday. I thought that was really great. And, you know, something I'd never even really thought about. And these are the things that I think in the food industry, more people need to be talking about. For those listening who don't know, I think you should check that out. But it's a a piece on, you know, when places open and have a friends and family dinner and and the cost and the bottom line. And is it something that everyone should be doing? Uh, What prompted you to write that piece? So as I had said, I think in the header to that piece, I had never gone to a friends and family dinner. They are a huge part of kind of the social scene here in Charleston because we have so many restaurant open openings and so many well-capitalized restaurants opening. So, you know, it's like every place is going to have some big, you know, shindig at the start. I've never gone because I don't accept free food as a rule. So it, it, it gets difficult when they're not handing out checks. Additionally, I mean, you can say that if you're reviewing a restaurant, you could say like, well, my early experience has no bearing on what I'm going to say, you know, when I visit in six weeks. I don't really trust myself on that. Like, honestly, I think humans are human. And I think if I had a horrible experience, uh, you know, I I think on some level, I'd, I'd probably be biased. I think it would just color my impressions. So so I don't go early to restaurants. And Look, I don't go to this private stuff. Like, I think hobnobbing is not, I mean, that's not my job. You know, my job is to represent and serve the general public. Um, So I never felt comfortable going to one of those events. I've never been to one. But then I had this restaurant recovery series that I launched in August of last year, where every week I was checking in with four local restaurants that were taking a different approach to the pandemic. Um, One was kind of acting like it didn't exist. Um, One was an existing restaurant that had shut down, was kind of waiting out. One was a new restaurant that still hadn't opened. They were supposed to open the week that it all started. Um, And the fourth restaurant was one that made some pretty radical adjustments to its operations. So each week I'd check in, see where they, how they were doing, you know, what they were going to make it. Interestingly, when I started this in August, 2020, I didn't think any of them would make it. I thought they would all close eventually. They all stayed open, uh, including the one which had never opened. Um, They just ran takeout throughout the pandemic. And then they they were opening in June. And after all those months together, they invited me to their friends and family. Yeah, okay, this is like, this makes sense from a reporting standpoint. I've seen them all the way through. So I went to the friends and family and I was just astonished. I mean, people were like ordering off the wine list and like, you know, order everything on the menu. And it's like, why, why would you do 
this to these people? Like, this is so expensive. And what is the point? And that's really what I wanted to find out. I was like, what is the point? So, you know, as I said in the piece, I just think now as we're reevaluating every aspect of the restaurant business, this seemed like one worthy of scrutiny. Yeah, I've never opened a restaurant. And I just think people spend a ridiculous amount of money on crazy stuff that I would never do. And I'm uh, like, and when I have those opinions and put them out there, people always want to argue. It's like, okay, but did you need $500 chairs or $10,000 chairs or whatever? Like, it just does not seem like a good business decision. Right. And I get it. Like, again, with this starting this newsletter, I'm starting a business for the first time. And I get it that a lot of these decisions are difficult. We're like, okay, I'm putting in, you know, this much money here and that much money there. And like, what's going to make the most sense for the people I serve in the end? And you don't always know, but these friends and family dinners really seem like a, like a mess. Well, that's why I think I had responded to you on Twitter. I'd said, you know, we had one here in town that I got invited to. And part of the process was, is they want to teach their staff how to, you know, deliver a check and everything. So they actually present the table with a full check. Now they let you know, this is comped if you want, but like anything you want to put towards the bottom line would be appreciated. And I thought that was great. I mean, and my wife and I still paid the full bill because I just wanted to go check it out. I thought it was cool to go and see what the restaurant was about, but I wasn't going to walk out and be like, oh, $200 free dinner. Right. I mean, and so that's what I tried to allude to in the piece, or maybe even said explicitly, like this really plays into the idea of the public sense of entitlement when it comes to restaurants. And that, you know, this was especially true, as we all remember, immediately after vaccines, right? And people were going back to restaurants. And we remember all those stories about how people were treating restaurant employees. And I had spoken to, I can't remember what, what made this person an expert. I don't know what line of work they were in, but saying that the theory was that restaurants had been so flexible and adaptable throughout the pandemic that people walked back in and were like, wait a second, like you're a you know French bistro that just became a coffee shop. So if I want pistachio ice cream, go make me some, you know, it's like you can do it all. And I think that's just such an unhealthy attitude. I mean, I think, you know, of course, restaurants have to be hospitable, but restaurants patrons also have to understand how to receive hospitality. And so, yeah. Yesterday, maybe, I think I saw on like their Instagram, Bon Appetit, or, or someone said like the 10 new rules of dining out. Did you see that? I saw it on Instagram and I didn't click on it. But I, was yeah, gonna I, go I just went through it. really quickly. I think the first one is like the customer isn't always right. But just, you mm-hmm. know, basically like it's time for us to all take a step back and think about like what it means to go out to a restaurant, what everyone is going through, not just you as a consumer. And mm-hmm. uh, like maybe here's some tips to be a better customer when you go out to eat. Right, right. Because it's not too much of a stretch from saying like to the waiter, and you know, I was a restaurant server forever to say like, oh, you know, why don't you smile when you talk to me? It's, you know, during the pandemic, why don't you take your mask off so we can, you know, it's like, okay, now you're putting people's lives at risk. Like that customer is not right. And I am glad that there are a number of restaurant owners who have empowered their employees to, to take a stand in those which is hard because I don't think you should, you know, some of these things have turned to altercations, both both um, loud yeah. and sometimes physical. And it's like, yep. like, that's just not a position anyone needs to be in. Like the whole thing with who's checking vaccination records at the door, like you're going to put a 18 year old hostess at the door checking this guy's card to make sure he can come in here. Like, I don't know. It's, it's a tough right. spot to be in. Right. That's a, I don't think there's any restaurant in Charleston that's restricted to vaccinating people. Oh, like, I'm, yeah, I'm in the land of like, I'm, I'm in the so land of vaccinated here. everything. Like yeah. you want to, you want to go here to this concert. You got to have your vaccination card. You want to go to this restaurant. You got to have your vaccination card. Great. So bizarre. 
<laughs> so it's a whole other world here. It really is. I mean, it really it was so strange. It's on social media. Like you hear from these other cities and states and you're like, oh my God, like they are literally living in a different world. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you plot out your trip when you're, you know, when you're thinking about what you're going to be writing? Do you already have a good chunk of your time mapped out already of where you're going? And I guess when you get there, like how many pieces are you writing when you go to a specific place? Yeah, good question. I mean, it kind of depends what I'm going for. I would say um, generally if I'm going somewhere, I'm going to report one story that I've already done some legwork for and I know that story is going to come together. I just need to, you know, sit down with one person or visit one restaurant or whatever. Um, And then I would probably try and scout other stories while I'm there. So it would be sort of secondary um, reporting. But you do give yourself a little time for the serendipity of like, oh, I wasn't expecting this to happen. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, so this, I I kind of started this whole adventure in July, took this three week train trip around the South for just that reason. I wasn't reporting any story at all. And in fact, I hadn't planned to even like write about the train trip because I was like, I'm just out here looking. Um, But then everyone wanted to hear about the train trip. So I wrote about the train trip. Um, It's interesting though, as I think I said in that piece, um, when you travel during the pandemic, there is less serendipity. Like things just, I mean, things are more planned. Things are more plotted. You don't, I I just didn't have as many finds as I feel like I might have um, in a freer time. But, But I did come back with a long, long story list. And so, yeah, I mean, I try like, the idea is that, that this newsletter will, as the name says, be newsy, you know, so I don't want to, um, you know, be too wedded to any schedule. But I do have like the next, I don't know, three months kind of planned out. And you're releasing what, twice a week? Is that right? Twice a week. So ideas like one big story drops on Monday, which could be, you know, an investigative piece, a review, an opinion piece, what you mentioned about friends and family. That was a Monday piece, you know, something that just takes up a, a topic of general interest. And then Wednesday is just kind of like a little roundup, short columns, um, short news items, things like that. Do you have any favorite pieces that you've written over the years? Like, is anything stand out that you're really proud of? Um, One of the things I was really, really proud of was the last piece I wrote for the Post and Courier here, which is a document that's just been sitting in the University of South Carolina library that nobody really looked at, has looked at. Um, and it was part of the Negro Writers Project, which was part of the, the, you know, the New Deal Writers Project program in the South. Those programs were segregated. So there were just under a dozen contributors to what was called, again, the Negro Writers Project, um, including a woman who essentially reviewed restaurants in Charleston. She wrote, I think, it was a six page guide to restaurants, you know, black restaurants in Charleston. And it was just kind of this fascinating document because you don't hear a lot about that period in Charleston history um, during the Depression. You know, obviously we hear lots about Civil War, Revolutionary War. This is kind of a, a, a less well-chronicled period. And so it was really great. Was a, I was able to track her down, track down her relatives who had no idea that she'd done this work and to learn about her. I mean, she was this really like headstrong, very proper woman. And it was, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun just to think about, you know, a part of restaurant history here in Charleston that had never really been told before. I didn't see that. I'll have to check that out. I'm sure I can probably still find it online. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess on the flip side of that, is there anything that stands out that's like your most talked about or debated piece? Is there like, have you done? I mean, I'm sure there's a few, but does anything stick out as like a review you did that nobody agreed with or a large percentage of people didn't? I'd say I don't know if I'd say nobody 
read with this, certainly my most talked about review that I did here was of a restaurant that uh, banned me before they were open. There was a, you know, kind of group of like restaurant industry and kind of like powerful people locally who had decided that I was too powerful and they wanted to correct for that. So they actually, they had like this mob meeting, seriously, they all got together. And the strategy was, well, let's, this new restaurant is opening. We're going to tell Raskin that she can't come and see what happens. Like, we'll just say we, we prefer not to be reviewed. Which is an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum because obviously I couldn't set the precedent and allow a restaurant to, you know, excuse itself from reviewing. It's not up to the restaurant, but also it's a small town and there was no way of me getting in there without them knowing. So in this case, I ended up um, reviewing my friend's leftovers that she brought to me in boxes. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like, we're not doing video for this right now. I have no yeah. idea what you look like. I mean, is has that been challenging, the whole process of, like, sneaking into a restaurant and people not knowing how, you know, what you look like? Yeah. In, I mean, there's no question in Charleston people do know what I look like. It is a really small town. And so, you know, I take so seriously, as I said earlier, kind of, you know, serving the readers. And so that means, like, I do public speaking engagements. Like, you know, if the Kiwanis want to learn how reviews work, I'll go and tell them. So while there are not photos of me circulating that are current, there are plenty of photos of me online, but they're all really, really old at this point. People locally know who I am. So it's it's kind of fun now to have a larger region where that isn't always going to be the case. Well, I appreciate that, you know, hopefully you get a non-biased review because as a diner, I want to know that the review kind of representative of the meal you've had i've talked about um the i don't want to say the worst meal i've ever had because i've had some bad meals the most disappointing meal i ever had was at husk in charleston Mm -hmm. and it prompted me to like and i'm not like a yelper it was on my website i waited almost a year before i wrote it i was so mad because i i think it's because i wanted to go there more than anywhere and i had read nothing but good praise and i went and had absolutely the worst service in my life there and yeah. i was and i was like i'm not a reviewer i don't want to be that yelper but i also felt like there was nothing on the internet anywhere that spoke about that kind of experience i'm like I'm so angry. Like maybe it's because it was my anniversary dinner, but like, you know, I I got a cocktail and they never once asked if I wanted a second and my empty glass sat on the table for an hour and a half and they served me a dessert with ice cream and no spoon and it's melting and I can't get a server to come over. And it was just like almost laughable how bad it was, but it was like, it was the year they were called like the best new restaurant in America, I think by Andrew Knowlton and all that. So I was like, oh, wow, this is the best new restaurant in the country. And like, I can't get a spoon for my melting ice cream. And, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Husk is really interesting. Husk is a restaurant that I don't want to say it was a victim of positive press, but it certainly had so much of it that it was it got to be when I was speaking to the Kiwanis or Rotary Club or whatever. Invariably, someone would come up to me after my speech and say, you know, which restaurant I hate? And I would say Husk. Every time. I mean, the local backlash against Husk was is intense. Um, and I think for the very reason that you just articulated, I, I always thought it was that what made the locals upset about Husk was that they weren't identified as locals. They were just treated like, yeah, you're lucky to be here. Either that theory may not have aged well because now everyone here is a tourist. And I don't know if any restaurant still recognizes locals. Like it's really, I mean, some, a little. 
But that was really kind of at the turning point for Charleston when it went from like, oh, this, you know, from the kind of that local to tourist shift. Now, I will say I'm a big fan of Sean. Um, and I did talk to the management that night and they took care of us at McCready's the next night. So they did make up oh, for great. it in that respect. I mean, amazing recovery. But it was just like one of those things that like I go to Charleston every year and my wife would say, we can go anywhere, but we're not going to Husk. And I was like, can we can we give it like a, another try? Like, I really want to love this place. She's like, no, nah, like I'm done. Yeah, right. Yeah. It really, like I said, I think it's just because there is was so many accolades for it and people's expectations are so high. But there is no restaurant in South Carolina that I know of that people mention so, so frequently like that's the place I'll never go. I also no. was eating in the same section as Bill Murray, and I feel like he got a little better service mm. than I did. And it was like he had four servers to my half a server. So, you know. Right. That, that's a local who still gets the local treatment. Yeah. I guess, you know, if I was in Ghostbusters, different story. <laughs> right. Well, what's do you have a favorite restaurant down in Charleston? I mean, can I put you on the spot? Is, is it too hard to pick one? Or I guess say like, if you only had one meal, like if you yeah. were going to go back and have one meal, where would that be? Gosh, just, I mean, it, it, gosh, I mean, it's it, it, like, it, it, I guess it depends what the meal is. Um, you know, I would, I'm a huge fan. Gosh, it's really, really hard to choose. Okay. I guess if I were to go away, I mean, one of the restaurants I would miss most is um, Bertha's Kitchen is the soul food restaurant in North Charleston. It's been recognized now as like uh, as a beard America's classic. It's just, you know, it's woman owned and run. Um, and the food is fantastic. You know, that's where you go for soup and red rice and all that. Um, so I really miss Bertha's. In terms of like new wave high-end restaurants, the things that Charleston gets written up for primarily, um, I, I, you know, I really emerged from the pandemic, such a believer in Edmund's Oast. Um, oh, which is number one rest number one restaurant for me. Yeah, really. I just went on Friday night. I had like why would I? I don't know if I had like a hard week or something. I was like, no, let's just go to Edmund's House. It, it not only is the food great, and they have this phenomenally talented uh, pastry chef now as well, and the wine list is really good. The bar's always been fantastic. I mean, it's great. Chef. Everything about it is great. But you know, they were just total leaders during the pandemic in terms of taking care of their people. Um, taking care of their staff, taking care of their guests. I know so many people who wouldn't eat anywhere else. It was the safest place in Charleston. Um, and they were amazing really, outdoor dining space. Amazing outdoor dining space. They were just, they were creative, um, you know, and then and just so caring. They initiated a um, back, you know, when this wasn't happening, they had weekly COVID testing for any hospitality employee in the city. You know, they're like, we got to fix this thing, which I was really impressed by. So I know they've had chefs there over the years, a couple different ones, but I'm a big fan of Bob Cook and everything Bob's done and where he's been. And when he moved in there, I was like, yeah, this just is the icing on the cake to make it my favorite place. I'm already a big beer guy. Um, so we end up and it's, it's fun. Like we take the kids there. There's always stuff for the kids to eat and completely. I mean, it's, it's, as I said, a lot of people who were smart, weren't eating anywhere else. And, um, I know you just started this new project, but do you have anything else on the horizon or is this enough for now? Oh, other things I'm doing. I, this is pretty much it right now. I'm trying to see if I'm working on anything else. I mean, anything I'm doing, I'm trying to kind of fold into this. So um, anything new I come up with you can find in the sub stack, I'd say. Yeah, no no pressure to start a new business, but sometimes we all have mu- multiple uh, irons in the coals. Right. Whose food writing do you love? 
boy, I'm a really big fan of Brett Martin. I think he's such a good writer. I, uh, I like, I read his pieces multiple times. Um, I think he's just terrific. What other food writing am I? Now I'm looking around. You can't see because we've got video on, but I'm looking around at my bookcases to see who else I've been reading. I mean, I try to read from, you know, from different eras and different places. Uh, it's really fun. I had the opportunity a few years ago to go to India and to meet some food writers there. And, you know, I don't know if I was like, that's the, like everyone should seek out this food writing, but it's so much fun to read, you know, food writing from a different culture. It's a different approach, different voice. So I enjoyed that. I try and read, try and read everyone. You know, it's a small world, so we all know each other. Yeah, it's like chefs trying to eat at all the chef restaurants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Was there anything else you want to get into before we get out of here today? I don't think so. This has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, and I usually kind of end with a question like, if you had to describe yourself as a flavor, what would it be? (laughs) Uh, Describe myself as a flavor. I mean, I think, you know, I really like horseradish which I think is like, right, like I, I'm going to go with horseradish, right? Because some people find it hard to take, but I think it, um, you know, makes things more lively. Oh, I love that. And I love horseradish. Yum. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm going to link everything in the show notes. People will be able to find um, your new writing, maybe some interesting old pieces and uh, where they can find you. What's the best place to reach out to you on the internet if people want to get in contact with you? Yeah, I am at read the food section at Gmail. So, and I answer every email and I answer them fast. I love hearing from people. So you should be able, I mean, they can also find me on Twitter or Instagram if they don't remember the email address, but I'd love to hear from folks. Great. I'll put that in the show notes. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yay. Thank you, Chris. This is really fun. And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.